0: Would you characterize your Christian life as victorious? To use the phraseology from ABC's Wide World of Sports, are you living in the thrill of victory or are you consistently experiencing the agony? I believe the level to which we live a victorious Christian life directly correlates to our knowledge of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The more we understand of Him and what He's done, the more we will live in victory. And we see this borne out in Colossians chapter 2. So turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2. This is part 2 of a sermon titled, Who is Jesus? And we're just walking through the book of Colossians, line by line, verse by verse. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. We're going to read down through verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading. Of the Word of God. The Bible says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through. Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are so grateful for your word, truth with no mixture of error. You, as the holy God of the universe speaking to us, we are grateful today for the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. We come to bow our hearts before you and, Lord, to expectantly receive what you have to say to us today. And we are grateful today for your presence. We are grateful that you are here. The Bible says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And so in some way in which we can't fully understand, when we gather as a family of faith and worship in spirit and in truth, you draw near to us. And we're grateful for that. Now, Lord, we ask you to have your way. We, we know that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So, Holy Spirit of God, would you come? And would you take your word and open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand it, that we might apply it, and give us the strength to live it? Well, thank you, Lord, for that grace. Have your way in this time together. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. He's writing to encourage them. He had heard some things about this church that were good, and he wanted to encourage them in those areas. But he's also writing to address some concerns that he had. He had heard that false teaching had begun to infiltrate this church, and so he's writing to warn them to stay away from that false teaching. And we began last week's sermon by making a couple of foundational statements, help us understand what we're going to talk about this morning. If you look there in your notes, you'll see that we said world religions, cults, and false worldviews get it wrong when it comes to Jesus. And Paul's pointing out the false teaching that had infiltrated the church. He's saying, listen, they're, they're getting it wrong when it comes to Jesus Christ. They're trying to lead you astray from simple faith in the Jesus of the Bible. And that's true with all cults, all world religions, all false worldviews, they get it wrong when it comes to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So here's the the key. When you know the truth about Jesus and keep your focus on growing in your knowledge of him, you will be able to stand against false teaching. Now as I talk about Jesus, who he is, last week and this week, you notice I'm not spending a lot of time talking about The different doctrinal teachings of cults or other world religions. Now, there may come a time when we have a class where we talk about what these groups believe so that we can learn how to evangelize them more effectively, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time or energy teaching you the doctrines of all these false groups because that's not the best way to prepare you against their falsehood. The best way to prepare you against their falsehood is to lift up the truth about Jesus. And when you know, the Jesus of the Bible, and you're growing in your knowledge of his nature and his finished work, that will keep you on guard and you will see that false teaching when it tries to creep into your life. The best way to stand against error is to really know the truth well. And so these these two weeks, we're we're just answering this question. Who is Jesus? This is a question that means everything for your life and for your family, and for your church, and for your nation. Indeed, this question is a question for the ages. Who is Jesus? Now, there are at least six answers to that question found here in the text we just read. We looked at three of those last week. Last week, we said that Jesus is the God-man. We spoke of the doctrine of the Incarnation, that Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. He's fully God, fully man the sacrifice for our sins. We said last week that Jesus is the complete satisfaction for our soul. He fills us up to overflowing. He meets our deepest needs. And we said last week that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the head over all rule and all authority. But there are three more things, three more truths we want to look at as we answer the question, who is Jesus. So follow along with me as we look at this text and answer that, that vital question. Who is Jesus? He is, number four, the resurrected Lord. The resurrected Lord. Look what Paul writes in verse 11. He says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, that means we identify with him because we know him in a personal way, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God, watch this, who raised him from the dead. And so Paul is clear on the historical detail. There was a time in human history when God the Father raised his son from the dead. Now, you know this story. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ came to earth, took on human flesh, lived a perfect, matchless life, and he willingly, voluntarily went to the cross for us to die for our sins. And he hung on that cross from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, and he died. He breathed his last. And after he died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea and some of his other followers took him down off that cross, and Joseph put Jesus in his own tomb. He was a wealthy man, had a tomb close to that area, and they buried Jesus in that tomb on Friday evening. Well, early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, his followers came to check on his body, and they peered into the tomb, and guess what? Jesus was not there. And there are some angels that said, listen, he, why do you look for the living uh, among the dead? Jesus is alive. He he rose from the grave, and then Jesus actually appeared to his followers over a period of weeks before he ascended back to heaven. And so we know the historical detail that Jesus Christ really did defeat death. He rose from the grave. But many, even though they know the historical fact, don't understand what that means for their lives. They don't understand the daily implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because they don't understand that, they're living defeated lives. So what does it mean for you and what does it mean for me that Jesus is the resurrected Lord? Well, there are at least two answers to that question. First of all, because he's alive, he can give you eternal life. Because he's alive, he can give you eternal life. He says there, Having been buried with him in baptism, verse 12, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. So Paul uses the metaphor of death to speak of our spiritual condition before we meet Christ. Before we meet Jesus, because we've sinned against a holy God, we are spiritually dead. That means we're separated from God, we're lost, we're headed for hell, and we're totally unable to do anything about it. The the metaphor of death means that we cannot save ourselves. We need someone to come and make us alive. And who better to come and make us alive than one who has defeated death itself? The idea of being made alive is the idea of being saved, being made a brand new creation in Christ. The Bible says because Jesus rose from the dead, because he defeated death, he can give you life too. He can raise up your spiritual dentist and bring you into Salvation, He can give you eternal life. In other words, if Jesus Christ were still in his tomb, how could he save? How could he make you alive? How can a dead man give life? How can a dead man give you hope beyond the grave? But because Jesus has risen from the dead, and we place our faith in him and are united with him, his resurrection power makes us alive. He calls us from death into eternal life he makes us brand new creations so because he's alive he can give eternal life listen when I was nine years old I called upon the name of the Lord just like the Bible said if someone's gonna be saved they got to confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord believe in their heart that, that that God has raised him from the dead and when I was nine years old I called upon his name and he answered me because he was there one in the tomb what did he, he? he defeated death he's alive So when I called on his name, guess what? He was able to save, able to give me eternal life. But there's another implication. Because he's alive, he can transform your life. Not only can he give you eternal life beyond the grave that starts when you meet him, but he can transform your life in the here and now so that you don't have to live a defeated life. Look what Paul writes in verse 11. In him, he writes, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, now Paul's using here the, the physical act of circumcision to make a point. In the Old Testament, God instituted circumcision as a sign and seal of his covenant with his people. And circumcision was a, a physical cutting away of flesh. But that's not what he's talking about here. Look what he says. So I'm talking about a cutting away that has nothing to do, verse 11, with hands. I'm not talking about physical circumcision. I'm talking about spiritual circumcision. Look what he says. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's saying here that Christ performed spiritual surgery on us. He cut away our flesh. In other words, he cut away our old sin nature. Now what does it mean that when we met Christ as Lord and Savior... He cut away our old sin nature. Because we all have a sin nature, right? That's why we sin. We're sinners by nature. We're all ruined by the fall. We're we're born sinners. That's why we blow it. That's why we disobey God. Because we're corrupt down to the very core of who we are. So what does it mean that when we were saved, Jesus cut away that body of the flesh? It does not mean that Jesus eradicated our sin nature at conversion. When I was saved... Jesus forgave me of all my sins, he made me alive, but he did not take away my sin nature. I still have it today. I still struggle with my flesh. How about you? You ever, you ever sense the flesh tugging on your arm? saying, hey, remember me? Remember how you used to think? Remember how you used to talk? Remember what you used to do? Let's, let's do some more of that. And we're constantly being tempted and lured by our old sin nature. It's not eradicated. Now, when we get to heaven, God's going to take it away. When we get to heaven, we'll be free from the very presence of sin. Our sin nature will be done away with. But here in this life, the sin nature is still there. So what does it mean when it says that Jesus performed surgery on us? He cut away the body of the flesh. It means that Jesus Christ rendered the sin nature powerless. In other words, the sin nature no longer has power over you unless you let it. You're no longer enslaved to your sin nature. It no longer has dominion over you because Christ has made you alive. And the Holy Spirit has come to live on the inside of you to give you the ability and the wherewithal, listen, to say no to sin and yes to God. If you're a Christian, if you're united with Christ, His resurrection power is brought to bear on your behalf so you can have victory over the flesh. That's what this means. Christ. Performed spiritual surgery. Same idea over in Romans. Turn to Romans with me very quickly. Romans 6. I want to show you this idea of being dead to sin, what it means practically for our lives. Look in verse 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes. Knowing this, that our old self, our sin nature, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Same idea. The old sin nature was cut away, done away with. Still there, but it has no power. Look what he says. He says, For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, there it is again, resurrection, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It no longer has power over you. You're no longer dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's the implication, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Christ has done spiritual surgery. He's cut away the power of your sin nature. So don't let it rain. Don't let it rain so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God For, here it is, sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. So here's what it means. When you met Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ performed a cutting away. He performed surgery. He cut away the power of the flesh over your life. So if you give in to your sin nature, it's not because you don't have power. It's because you're choosing not to appropriate that power in your life. So what does it mean that Jesus has risen from the dead? His Resurrection power is available to you and available to me to live in spiritual victory. But you've got to appropriate that power every day. Jesus, fill up my life. Give me the power I need. Help me to keep my eyes on you so that I can have that power to say no to sin and yes to God. I wonder what may be defeating you consistently in your life. Perhaps it's some sort of addiction. Or perhaps it's a, a habit that you just can't break. Or perhaps you can't get your mo- emotions under control and your emotions are ruling the day in your life. Or maybe there's some deep, dark, secret sin that, that you, that you, you want to get away from, and you, and, and, but you can't You keep coming back to it. I don't know what may be defeating you today, but I want you to understand You have the power, the resurrection power of Christ at your disposal if you know him. And if you'll ask him to fill you up with that power, he'll give you the victory. If you'll trust in Christ, understand what it means, you're united with him. He will give you the victory. You don't have to live defeated. But if you try to do life in your own strength, it's like trying to vacuum with the vacuum unplugged. If the vacuum's unplugged, you may see the dirt and want to get the dirt up, but you're never going to get the dirt up, are you? That's what it's like to try to deal with your dirt in your own strength. It's never going to happen. But when you plug into the power source, when you stay close to Jesus and surrender to him so that he's filling up your life, that resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is available to you to help you to have victory you got to trust Jesus. The power's found in Him. Walking with Him. Abiding in Him. Focusing upon Him. It's all about Christ. So, who is Jesus? He is the resurrected Lord. That means everything for you and for me. Number five, who is Jesus? He's the only hope for guilty sinners. The only hope for guilty sinners. Look what, back in Colossians 2, look what Paul writes. He writes in verse 13, When you were dead, that means lost in your sins, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. What does that mean? It means that he has forgiven us all our transgressions. All our transgressions. He goes on to unpack that in verse 14. He says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, to understand your sin and guilt and what Jesus has done, there are three steps we need to go through to understand these two verses. The first thing you need to understand is this. You owe a debt. You owe a debt. He says there in verse 13 that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We've all sinned. We've all blown it. And he says there in verse 14 that, Christ canceled out our certificate of debt. What is this certificate of debt? In the first century, when someone would commit a crime and they were arrested and and brought to trial, brought before a tribunal or a judge, there's a legal document that would come into play. That legal document was called a certificate of debt. And and what the, the judge would do is he would write on that certificate of debt the crimes you've been found guilty of. Every crime written down on that certificate. And here's what Paul says. Every one of us has a certificate of debt. We've all sinned. And in the holy mind of God, none of our sins are hidden. They're all out in the open. God knows everything we've ever done. Every sin we've ever committed, every act of iniquity and immorality, God knows it all. It's written down in his mind like a certificate of debt. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. God knows our sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one in this room, no one in this room that is sinless. We have all rebelled against God, and all of our sins are on that certificate of debt. Now, how many of you would like your certificate of debt to be placed on the screen up here this morning? Everything you've ever done wrong, every crossword, deceitful word you've spoken, every immoral or hateful thought that's gone through your mind. Every sinful deed you've done, written out for everyone to see, this picture of the certificate of debt reminds us that we've all sinned, and none of our sins are hidden from God. You owe a debt. We've sinned. We deserve punishment for our sin. But here's the second thing. Not only do you owe a debt, you have a judge. It says there in verse 14 that the certificate of debt consists of decrees against us which was hostile to us. In the first century, a judge would take that certificate of debt with the different crimes listed, and after finding someone guilty, would write on that certificate their sentence. He would decree their punishment. So when it mentions that our certificate of debt is is, is consisting of decrees. It mentions or it, it reminds us that because we've sinned, we deserve some punishment. And God has decreed that if someone has rebelled against him and dies in that condition, in their sin, they will spend eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell, experiencing the just wrath against their sin. God has decreed that our sins must be punished. Our certificate of debt says we are sinners. And it lists all the things we've done wrong. And written on that certificate of debt is we deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. After a guilty verdict, a judge would write the penalty for the crime. And the Bible tells us the penalty for the crime. Our crimes. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. God has decreed that. So you owe a debt, and I owe a debt. You have a judge that's declared you guilty, and I have a judge. But here's the third thing, and it gets really good right here. You have a Savior. Look what it says there in verse 14. It says that the certificate of debt that consists of decrees against us was hostile to us. But look what it says. He has taken it out of the way... And nailed it to the cross. And here's what that means. In the first century, after someone was found guilty for crimes, they would have the certificate with their crimes listed and the sentence written on that document. And it was customary for someone to nail that document above a jail cell. So if you went into jail for your crimes, above your jail would be this document that lists your different crimes and, and the punishment you were called to endure. But here's what the Bible says. That certificate of sin that hangs over all of our heads, we're all guilty, we all deserve death and punishment. Jesus took that certificate and nailed it to his own cross. That means that Jesus took all of our sin, everything we've ever done, he took it all on himself. And when he died on the cross, he was dying for our sins. He was paying the penalty that you and I, deserve to pay and so all of our sins have been nailed to the cross and if we embrace jesus as our lord and savior his death on the cross applies to our certificate of debt and our sins are forgiven the debt has been paid our sins have been washed away now it gets even better in the first century after someone served their sentence they would release them and bring them back before the judge. And they would come back before the judge with their certificate of debt. The judge would look at the certificate and say, Okay, you were guilty of these crimes. I decreed this sentence, and you've served your time. You've paid your debt to society. So you're free to go. And when the judge made that legal declaration, listen, he would write on that, to telesty to that word to tell us that means paid in full pretty cool right now I want you to think about Jesus on the cross in John chapter 19 the bible records just before he breathed his last just before he died he cried out it is finished now that phrase in the original greek language is the word guess what to tell us when Jesus said, "It is finished," what He's saying is, "Paid in full." I have Wade's certificate of debt nailed to my cross, and because I died for His sins, His sins have been paid in full. That's good news, right? Jesus is the the only hope for guilty. It's why the the psalm uh, the, the, the the hymn writer wrote. Horatio Spafford, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Now listen to me. Some of you know Christ. You've experienced this, this debt being paid in full, your sins being forgiven, but you still struggle mightily with guilt mightily as a matter of fact you might say that guilt is winning the victory over you you're living a a defeated life because you can't move forward in your christian journey you can't get past the past and you just feel the weight of your sin the weight of your guilt well i would submit to you that you don't understand what happened at the cross And the way to have victory over your guilt is to understand what Jesus did for us. He took not just some of our sin, he took all of our sin. And he nailed it to his cross, he took it on himself, and he paid the penalty. Listen, for every one of our sins, even the really heinous stuff that you can't get past, Jesus died for those sins. They've been washed away, they've been paid in full to tell us it is finished. You don't have to live a defeated life way down with the, the, the anxiety that guilt brings on your life. In God's eyes, those sins have been washed away. And so our, our job is to see our sin like God sees our sin. Completely forgiven. God's not holding it to our account anymore. It's been paid in full. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the resurrected Lord, and and Jesus is the only hope for guilty sinners. But, But sixth and last, who is Jesus? Jesus is the victor. The victor. Look what it says in Colossians 2, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now that phrase, Rulers and authorities speaks of the spiritual realm. It speaks of Satan and his demons. And he's speaking here of what happened to them when Jesus Christ won the victory by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So think of it like this. Because of the finished work of Christ, Satan and his demons have been disarmed. Look what it says. When he had disarmed... The rulers. Now that word disarm literally in the Greek language means to strip away. It was used to to refer to taking off a garment. And what he's saying here is that, that when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead, it was as if the power of Satan was stripped away. He has no power over God's children anymore. It's been stripped away. Now, what power does Satan have? I mean, what, is he, what are his tools, his weapons that he uses? Well, we know from the Bible that he's a deceiver, right? He's a liar, Jesus says. He, he likes to lie and deceive us to lead us the wrong direction. We know that he's a tempter. He likes to lure us to do the wrong thing. We know he's a, an accuser. He likes to bring our old sins up against us to make us miserable. And we know that Satan's ultimate power is the power of death. Listen to me. If he can get you to death, without knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, He knows He has you for eternity. Separated from God. Far from God. In your sins, experiencing God's wrath. He wants you to go to hell. So He wants you to meet death without knowing Christ. That's what He wants. That's what He desires But when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that that power was stripped away. When someone is saved by Jesus, Satan can no longer touch their soul. Their eternity is settled. He can no longer even condemn them. I mean, he might try to bring up your past. He might say, hey, remember all the bad things you've done? Remember who you were? Remember your shame? Remember your guilt? And all you have to say is, listen, paid in full. It's been paid in full by Christ. Yes, I'm a sinner, but it was nailed to the cross. And so listen to me. Because Jesus died on the cross and because Jesus rose from the dead, Satan has no power over you. None. Quit letting him rule your life. Quit letting him chew you up and spit you out. He has no power unless you let him have power. Martin Luther experienced this reality in a dream. One night, he was the great 16th century reformer. One night in a dream, he was visited by Satan. You might call that a nightmare. And Satan brought to Martin Luther a record of his life, written with Martin Luther's own hand. And the tempter said to him, Is this true? Did you do all these things? It's in your handwriting. Did you commit all these sins? And in his dream, Luther hung his head in shame, and he was terrified. And he confessed, Yes, it is all true scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung upon him again and again. Yes, I did that. Yes, I'm guilty. Well, eventually the evil one was prepared to make his departure, having brought Luther to the lowest depths of abject misery. But suddenly, in his dream, the reformer, Martin Luther, turned to the tempter and said, It is true. Every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So then in his dream, Martin Luther was reminded, Satan has no power. He has been disarmed. Secondly, Satan has been disgraced. Look what it says in verse 15. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. That means that all of the spiritual realm, demons, angels, all of that which is unseen by us, all of the rulers, the authorities, all of those created beings saw Jesus triumph over the devil. And they all know that Satan has been defeated. He has been disgraced publicly in the spiritual realm. And then third, Satan and his demons have been defeated. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So the Lord has triumphed over Satan. He has defeated Satan and made a public display of him. Now this terminology pictures the Roman Empire. In the first century, when a Roman emperor would, or general would win a great victory, they would march back into the great city of Rome. And they would call this parade the Roman triumph. Here's what they would do. The parade would begin, sometimes the parade lasted for days, by the way. The parade would begin with all of the spoils from the captured nation being paraded before the Roman citizens, all the things the general had captured. Then after the spoils would come by, then the prisoners would come walking by, bound in shackles, as if to signify that the general is more powerful than the enemy, and he's parading the enemy through the streets of Rome, and then At the last, after the army of the Roman Empire would come marching through, the emperor or the general himself would come marching through that parade. And everyone would cheer and recognize that the general was the victor. The general had defeated the enemy. And that's the picture here. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he has has made a public display, a victory parade, if you will, where Satan and his demons have been seen as defeated and he has been held up as the great victor. So who is Jesus? He's the resurrected Lord. He's the only hope for guilty sinners and he is the victor. But here's what it means for you and for me. If you look at that summary statement. Because of Jesus, we do not have to live defeated by our sin nature. The resurrection power of Jesus gives us victory over that. We do not have to live defeated by our guilt. All of our sins have been nailed to the cross. We bear them no more. And because of Jesus, we do not have to live defeated by our enemy. He has been disarmed, disgraced, defeated. He has no power over you unless you let him. Just stand in union and communion with Christ. And He will give you the victory. So, do you experience the thrill of victory in your Christian life or do you far too often experience the agony of defeat? I believe the key to victory is knowing Jesus personally and following Him daily and staying close to Him as we can. And He will give us the victory.